Hi all, hello, and welcome to the Immersive Media Podcast. This is your introduction to immersive technologies and media that are being used in different industries around the world for many different reasons. The aim of this podcast is to introduce you to some of the professionals, practitioners, and researchers working in this field, and to help give you an insight into the industry and their own experience. We have picked guests who represent some of the key topics we are covering in the module, but also those that are doing some exciting or unique work. This is by no means the only podcast you can listen to if you want to explore these topics in more detail, but it is your whistle-stop tour of this exciting subject from the perspective of those who actively work within it. So let's get into it. Whilst immersive technologies and content are gaining prominence in various industries through both their better understanding of what these are and what impacts they have, and of course, the rise in sales of uh, consumer technology, we should be looking ahead at what might be round the corner for immersive media. It is essential that as a community working in this field and applying it in our own work, that we understand how new technologies and experiences might impact the work we are doing and the positive and negative impacts these might have on users and on society. I am pleased to welcome back Daniel Dabosky bryant from Educators in VR, Rob Eagle from the University of West England, who I have to congratulate on the recent news that he will be starting as Associate Lecturer in Virtual and Extended Realities in a couple of weeks, and Peter Gardham, Director of This Great Adventure. Thank you all for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. So uh, you each have a unique perspective of immersive media and technology, and we have heard previously about your own experiences and the work you are doing. But for this discussion, I want to get your thoughts on the future of immersive media and what you are excited about, what might be helping to inform any future projects and any concerns you might have and why. I'd like to start off by mentioning that whilst technological development is great, I am more excited about the new generation of creatives and developers coming into this area. With new and unique ideas around its use and with a better understanding of the affordances, scope and limitations. And in part, I think it is thanks to better awareness of the technology, better education in how to use it, better accessibility, and the work many of us are already doing to try and help grow the immersive sector. However, I am concerned that there is still a clear skills gap in the industry, and that it is still seen as a very niche market to many. It is still not attracting enough interest from those who are just starting their careers or are looking at what they want to do past education. So just to start off the conversation, do you have any thoughts on this? Would you say this is changing? I'll jump in. <laughs> um, yeah, change changes rapid at the moment. Um, I got involved only three years ago and the change I've seen in that time um, has been remarkable and none more so than 2020 with the pandemic. Um, with things going quote unquote virtual, a lot of education went virtual. That that term gets used quite loosely, but um, there's quite a few factors converging. I think one price points of consumer headsets is coming down, and for example, the iPhone 11 has a lidar scanner inbuilt. Um, so these technologies are becoming a lot more accessible, and soon might be ubiquitous. Um, then we've got 5G around the corner that doesn't solve the digital divide, but for those who have data, their data will get faster. Um, but you're right, there's still uh, 
we did a bit of research for the virtual world society and it seems like the perception of the awareness of what vr is or xr is 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 very low still and within those people who know about it the perception is mostly entertainment and gaming that this might be used for um education learning other experiences is just not on anybody's horizon other than people like ourselves and a few other people and talking to my colleagues at college uh, when i was there it was an uphill struggle for them to even like listen there's they're they're busy dealing with zoom and uh, google meet which has done you know the heavy lifting let's be honest but it's just a far cry from from what can be done that's my take on it so yeah change is accelerating and really necessary and a lot of work to be done in terms of educating people um helping them realize what how powerful it can be in the right hands yeah yeah i think as you say there's this interesting convergence and 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 the the shift is is very rapid. The I mean, I remember when we started our kind of first web platform for creating kind of storytelling trails back in two thousand eight. So that was kind of right off the back of the release of the smartphone um, and people starting to carry around these technologies that can uh, add with the you know kind of the spread of mobile internet as well. This idea that you can actually kind of access information in the place where you are and by putting information in a particular format, in a particular location, it transforms your experience of being there. Um, and for years and years with that, the technology was the technology was new, but everyone was kind of familiar with the smartphone and the idea that it connected you to things. But the idea that you could yourself create things for that and use that to do what you want with it instead of you know waiting for someone else to come up with something or you know, making do with something that wasn't quite what you needed um, took a long, long time, actually. And I, I would say it's, it's only been in the last couple of years that the idea that you can, you know, you can build your own website, you can create a trail of information, you can layer your experiences and, and as you say, kind of augment the world in, in a range of interesting ways. So for a long time, those conversations, you'd, you'd have to spend a couple of hours talking to people just to get the idea that you know you can create things that people can access on their smartphones instead of you just being a receiver of things. Um, so I think that shift was it, it's it's still not entirely there, but the what really, as you say, what really kickstarted that um, I suppose the the shift of desire to do these things. The pandemic has been an, a, a huge kind of uh, transformation across the sector that way. Um, and it's no longer a case of, oh, wouldn't that be nice? It's, we need this, how do we do it? And the idea that, I think part of it as well is the fact that the terminology is also a little unhelpful a lot of the time. Um, yeah. So you have like, so digital strategy, for example, is now basically synonymous with social media and your marketing campaign. And the entire idea behind that traditionally has been, how do you put stuff out there that gets people to come to your space and get them through the door, you know? Um, and actually when those spaces are closed and you can't go and see those real things, like that whole shift like that needs to be flipped on its head to a certain extent. So your digital strategy or digital transformation, which I think is 
in some ways more helpful, but it 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 also is such a blanket term um, that you know if you say you did digital transformation, is that process? Is that people? Is that experiences? You know, what does that what does that mean in your particular case? Um, but the 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 shift from trying to drive people to come to your site to we've got stories and collections and assets and, and the interesting ways of putting those together. And how do I now take my stories and my collections and everything that makes up like our value proposition? And how do I put that out onto the streets? How do I take that into people's homes, make it accessible in classrooms and really kind of, and from, from my perspective, like we come from a, the, the narrative and storytelling side. So I'm not actually like a, a developer or coder myself. But I work very closely with technologists and really kind of try and mediate that space between a client who's got a story to tell and the audience who wants to engage with it in a particular way and then applying technologies to that problem. Um, but yeah, that that big shift from firstly from going, this is something we need to do. How are we going to do it? To And then also kind of going, well, our space is limited, but the virtual environment and the ability to reach out is almost unlimited. So what does that mean to the way that we think about ourselves and the stories yeah. we tell and the assets that we use? I think it's fortunately there are enough uh, free tutorials out there um, in a lot of the the um, platforms, games engines, um, software. Um, so I think, it, you know, access to this is becoming um, increasingly easier, uh, more democratized, possibly. Um, if you look at something like, you know, the Unity um, tutorials that are, you know, loads of them on YouTube, um, I think Unreal recently has launched a, their own sort of um, series of, you know, like classroom, basically, um, also to make theirs free. And so it all depends on what sort of look, style, feel do you want? Do you want the kind of the, the lovely hyper-realism with all the textures of, uh, you know, of, um, uh, of, of Unreal? Or do you want something maybe more... Uh, functional, shall we say, not to put down Unity too much. Um, so I, I think it's it's easier to sort of to skill up yourself uh, in these tools um, now more than ever before, and I think this will only increase. Um, and I, and I think for for someone like me, also kind of I'm coming from a film background and from kind of not having those kind of hard coding skills. It's it feels more inviting to be to kind of like dip a toe into the water and start start learning some of um, some of these skills. Um, because yeah, up until now, I've, I've paid people to develop things for for me, and so I'm now trying to upskill myself in order to be able to make them. Um, so learning alongside my students as they're as they're doing Unity training, um, I think it's really important for me to be able to do that as as well. I mean, I recognize I, I will never be an expert in that necessarily, and I think there's still very much a case for hiring. Um, specialist. I, I think if, if we try to become jacks of all trades, that means becoming masters of none. So I think there, there really is, there is still a, a case to be made for, for getting a, a sound designer who specializes in spatial audio, for getting, uh, you know, a, a great Unity or, or Unreal Wiz who can really kind of shape it into something. Um, but I think the more that we as storytellers understand generally the language, I think it makes working with those specialists easier. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a, 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 sorry, just to jump in there, I think because there's two really interesting points there. I think one of which is, you know, that idea that any sufficiently advanced technology is is magic um, or appears as magic to people. 
like working in the heritage and the cultural sector, pretty much anything you do that's digital is still magic to the vast majority of people who work in that sector because the 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 literacy gap is so so great that even describing the difference between virtual and augmented reality is quite uh, it's it's very difficult and kind of developing this project at Tamworth Castle at the moment, doing the on-site testing with the audiences, we kind of, we've created them and, you know, you mentioned the iPhone 12 with the LiDAR, that we we used that to map the spaces so that we could do remote development and testing so it would be far more accurate when we actually got to the site. Um, but one of the things is when we got to the site and we're, you know, we're taking the client around, just the way that people use their phones, scanned a marker, step back and look down and expect to see the action happen on their phone screen. And you go, no, 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 like augmented reality is different. So how do you kind of guide people and teach people how to interact with that new medium as you're kind of delivering an experience? Yeah. Um, I think just on, on, on the other point there with the, um, I suppose, the, the accessibility, like I think, because traditionally, you know, the idea of being a jack of all trades was, was a very positive thing like that was a good thing to be um and so you're not restricted to just being expert in one thing and i think there are as you say there's absolutely a necessity for people who are experts in that particular thing in sound art in you know 3d modeling in using uh interpreting lidar data for example but as the kind of creative developers that sit between clients or are employing multiple different technologies and techniques, then it's really important to be able to speak those different languages um, and translate between them. Um, yeah. yeah, I'd love to pick just uh, pick up on a couple of points there very quickly. Um, interesting that all of us don't consider ourselves coders and developers. I'm not either. And I want to just echo the point that you made that what encouraged me in the beginning was that as a non-coder, I didn't feel excluded from jumping in and, and, and trying things out. There were enough accessible creation tools, like a 360 camera, um, like a scanner, like um, just the headset and some you know in-world creation tools. I felt like I was in the mix and um, that was really exciting to me. And my experiences with uh, students and educators who do have a bit of curiosity, when they realize that as well, that um, yeah, there's there's content there, it's growing, and I, I can get in the mix. That's really compelling for them. That that kind of often is a shift in their approach. Um, the other thing is, when we talk about immersive media, my my specialization is virtual reality. Um, I, I see how augmented reality is really powerful and, and may end up vastly outpacing uh, virtual reality. But I think the, the the wave of augmented reality is yet to come, I think. Uh, and then we haven't even touched on mixed reality. <laughs> um, and and that whole vocabulary, um, you're right, is difficult to relay. When, when you have a, when you have just a, a natural understanding of what it is from, from being in it and around it, it's easy to forget how this is completely new language for people who, who don't know it. And um, for me, I think one of the, what I'm waiting for is for a, a shift in, 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 in 
mass media to, to include this word spatial because immersive um, or augmented or virtual or mixed realities, that will all form a, a layer, a network of just spatialized, um, geolocated and spatial experiences and data. Um, that's where I'm hoping to get for, in terms of when we're looking forward to what's coming mm. next. Mm. Um, last thing very briefly is, um, you both made the point of jack of all trades, master of none. I think we're in that stage where kind of people who are jumping in, you, you quickly kind of, oh, there's this over here. You're getting a map, a lay of the land almost, and trying your hands, right, to see is there anything that is just out of my reach. Um, and as this industry evolves and matures, you will have a whole, I don't want to say army, but there will be a whole raft of jobs, each specializing, like you have now with the internet, right? Nobody could say they're a master of all aspects of the internet or, or digital economy. Um and in five, 10 years um, in the immersive industry, you will have all kinds of jobs that we don't even really exist yet, just to fill the demand, I think. Like for example, one example is in-world uh, VR filming. I work with a team of filmers who record our events in VR and then make them available on YouTube for posterity. That wasn't a thing even two, three years ago. Yeah. And now we're paying people to film our upcoming conference um, on a number of different platforms. So, yeah, all kinds of new jobs, mm. world builders and so on. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it is really interesting on how everything is changing, like new jobs are coming through. I mean, I pride myself, I, I class myself as a creative technologist, which is essentially a jack of all trade, uh, of trades. Um, I started off audio engineering and video editing and kind of then started playing around with web design and things like that. I mean, I would never say I was a, a an expert of anything. I dabble with Unity. I dabble with Unreal. Um, but what I have noticed is that there are quite a few people who are coming from different backgrounds who want to experiment with immersive content and kind of this idea of using space as a storytelling aesthetic and kind of utilizing like spatial computing to support their work or support the kind of communication or storytelling that they want to output to their audiences. Um, but when I speak to them, they still class themselves as essentially filmmakers. They or they 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 class themselves as audio engineers or sound engineers, sound designers, um, that just so happen to have some experience with this new realm, this new medium. Um, so it is interesting that some people are seeing new jobs and new jobs are being created, but there are still a lot of people out there who still see it just as part of their role. It's yeah. still something that they can they can tackle. It just they have to think about it slightly differently. Right. Can I add a, a very short point? Pick up on that. Um, this idea of multidisciplinary approach. So there's a field of study called multidisciplinary studies, which is um, gaining more popularity in recent years, I think. And um, in the conference coming up in May, one of the panels I'm putting together is a multidisciplinary approach to designing immersive experiences. I think that's a really interesting conversation to have where you have the engineers, you have the psychologists, you have the pedagogists, um, to get a, a bunch of people like that in a room and discuss, now that we can do it, we need to think about how we should do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Really and it, it comes, I mean, it comes across in so many, so many important ways as well. This, this kind of collaborative 
multidisciplinary approaches to things. Uh, and there was a game that came out recently, I've completely forgotten what it was called, but it was developed with uh, a group of psychologists and part of it was trying to work in the experience of mental disorder in the main character and make that more accessible to uh, the game player. So you have these yeah. kind of voices happening at different points in the head, you're never quite sure who's real, who isn't. And it's, you know, I played it, it, it after about 20 minutes, I felt really, really bizarre and I had to stop playing um because just with the headphones and everything you're gonna have to tell us what it is <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll i'll find out what it was called and 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 share the share the link um but it is so so we come from kind of museums and, and heritage backgrounds and so this kind of spatial aspect that like we've always called it narrative environment design um and it's this idea of you're telling stories and kind of in four dimensions technically you've got kind of you've got your three kind of spatial and then you've got time because you've got the, the the journey that people are going um and especially when it comes to museums like they're some of the most highly designed spaces in the world you know like it's entirely created to lead you from one piece of information to another to build up a bigger picture to give you a variety of experiences and so to do that you have to work with these different different specialisms and different yeah. kind of expertise. Um, so, I, like one of the earliest projects that uh, actually my my uh, my colleagues worked on uh, was the Dinosaur Museum and Natural History Museum, um, Dinosaur Galleries there, uh, which they're just redoing now. But that was back in 1993, um, and so that was a mixture of you know, scientific and academic research being translated into something that could be publicly kind of ingested and enjoyed. Um, and that involved a whole mixture of working with artists and engineers and robotics and animatronics and light and projection and a range of different kind of uh, technologies to create that immersive space. Um, and and I think now with the 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 kind of the the technical versions of that um this idea that you know and and, and looking to the future i think one of one of the we kind of kind of uh wanted to speak a little bit about the risks i think and one of the one of the risks with these really kind of advanced and immersive technologies is as we're seeing played out in the kind of the less advanced in terms of i don't know like the experiential but things like Facebook, things like Twitter, we know that they have the habit of, or they are kind of in some ways designed to silo people or create these kind of echo chambers. Um, and so that actually, despite being supposed to connect people to other people, they have the other effects of actually kind of breaking that kind of social fabric of a shared frame of reference. Um, and so one of the things I think for the future of these kind of shared shared experiences, especially social, um, but you know, in a, in a whole range of ways. And I think it will, it will take a range of social, educational uh, and storytelling approaches, but, but that being a shared experience in the environment. So it's being done at the moment with like, you know, cloud anchors and those kind of new technologies where you can have shared AR experiences, but having a socially virtual environment where you can go somewhere, you can leave your picture, you can leave a story, someone else can come along and experience that. You can add to and interpret an experience that someone else has created and give your perspective on it. Um, and kind of leaving those kind of, uh, digital traces in the world 
um, if you want to, and encountering other people, I think is is one of the the ways that counter. Like, firstly, I think that's the way that those kind of augmented reality social experiences are going to start evolving. But also, that then helps if it's depending on how it's done. It could then help significantly in creating, recreating that shared frame of reference and. Oh, understanding yeah. the multiple interpretations of a particular object or a location. It's a lot of figuring out to be done with that, though, because if you have, for example, a platform, call it um, Flitter or whatever, who is using um, augmented reality as a, as, a, as a shared experience, and I go downtown um, and I click on my platform and there's shared content, I'm interacting with it. Um, it's again only the people who use Flitter um, who will have that experience, mm. and it might be, um, you know, Gracebook over there has another platform who's using uh, the same kind of technology. Mm. Um, so then you've got two layers, and there's that barrier. That's the first thing. The second thing is if I go downtown to I don't know um, the the clock tower, and I leave leave things there. Um, or, or, or even better, we had the conversation just before the podcast. Say, if somebody comes to my house and and leaves content, maybe I don't even know them, or mm -hmm. they're they're graffitiing the digital space. Is that vandalism or is that art? You know, <laughs> does it belong to me because it's in my geolocated space? So a lot of figuring out to be done there. Um, I think I'm excited about it. Um, I wouldn't want to have the job to figure out <laughs> and the rights and the IP and all of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice segue um, into kind of the next area really. I, I think we should kind of discuss sure. is um, kind of looking at technological developments in the future. Um, and kind of one of the, one of the big ones this year, of course, Ocul Oculus Quest, Two was one of the big winners of the last 12 months, which has in turn helped VR in particular gain more users and a greater public awareness. However, I am concerned over whether the fact that Facebook's policies regarding accounts and data are going to be of concern later down the line, but also whether the fact the sheer powerhouse of Oculus and Facebook is going to make this a one-horse race. Um, are you concerned about this or do you have other concerns um, or is there anything particular technology wise that might excite you looking ahead? I think, well, I, I think there are enough alternatives that it doesn't just have to be Facebook. Um, Facebook is trying to emerge as the, um, you know, as, as the, the primary, as pretty much as, as a monopoly. And I think their strategy right now has been working. Um, I think with, with a lot of VR and now with them, uh, with their projects in, in AR, with their project Aria, um, their new AR, uh, glasses. Um, I think their strategy has been working, but I think that's where it's actually down to us as consumers. Um, to choose other options, I think we can we can create. This isn't this isn't like a predetermined uh, platform that we have to engage with. We can create content and work with with other um, with other devices. So I, I don't think that it's that it's already necessarily a closed case in that sense. There are, there in terms of AR, um, there's some interesting glasses and headsets that I'm seeing coming out of particularly of, of Asia, um, China. You know, when you look at Enreal, um, and it's not to say that China doesn't have some of possibly some of its own issues in terms of, of 
data privacy and all of that. But I do think that there are enough alternatives at this moment that are kind of coming out um, and other ones on the horizon that we don't necessarily all have to, you know, march to the tune of, of Facebook. Um, so, yeah, I, there, I, I am I'm I am excited by a lot of these alternatives. Um, and I think that we also need to to look at those as much as we look at Facebook. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I would agree to in, in, in a, on, on a range of both points. Absolutely. I think there's there's. In terms of the, I suppose, the physical technologies, then you know, they, they happen to be the big names at the moment, I think, as those, and, you know, partly that's, there are, there are a range of reasons why, like one of them is that Facebook invested seriously heavily into a lot of the components that go into those bits of technology. So they actually own the rights to a lot of the, the components that a range of different headsets use. Um, so they were very clever about that. Um, the other thing I think in terms of the data, I would say kind of that in some ways links back to uh, uh, one of the points we were making before about the literacy. You know, people people don't really have a sense that if you click, yeah, okay, agree to all these terms and conditions, that you've now become the product and everything you do is being sold and resold and mined and used to make profit for someone else. So every action, every time you interact with that piece of technology, you're creating more resources for the people who, who are going to, to purchase those things. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that cognitive connection is really there for most people at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's only when people start going to those companies and saying, I want to know everything you have on me. And yeah. then they see the scale of, of that information. And so yeah. you combine that activity data that's being generated with biometric data that's being gathered with human psychological and behavioral traits that can be read from that data and then applied to other people, I would say that's absolutely a serious concern um, yeah. now already, um, let alone in the future when you've got, you know, if you've got smart CCTV cameras, they, they already have the capability, it's just not switched on in most of them to, yeah. you know, to recognize, to do facial recognition, to, to recognize you from a gesture, the way you pick up your cup of tea, you know, like that's going to get into a really, really strange place in the world um, when, when there, is, there isn't really a way to hide yourself because they can recognize yeah. you from the way you walk, the way you scratch your nose, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's an interesting divide growing between like what the technologies are capable of and what the people who know how to use them are using them for. And the legislation that protects people's rights and also people's ability to ask for the right things, yeah. you know, um, to demand yeah. the right protection. Um, yeah, I wanted to, I, I agree with what you say. I wanted to pick up on something that Rob said and kind of the, the context of the question. Facebook for me is a two-edged sword. I I have real issues with the way they operate and the data mining and all, and their whole business model, right? The consumer is the product. Um, but at the same time, with regards to immersive technology, I fight their corner a little bit because they are responsible in a big way for getting us to where we are, right? They, the investment they've put in, the tools they've built, the devices that they're coming. It's hard to, it's hard to, 
beat the Oculus 2 right now. I hope somebody comes along. I hope three, four companies come along and pose serious competition so that we truly have uh, a real, you know, level playing field and choice. And the choices of the consumers will then inform um, the companies for, for which way to go with it. But I think in some ways it's early days. We're, we still haven't had the iPhone moment for VR. Uh, for for immersive technology and the Quest Two is kind of the closest thing. Interestingly, they've already announced the Quest Three, and I I heard somewhere <laughs> whispering us of Quest Four, like they're they're onto a winner there, right? They're going down that road, irrespective of the project area and that. The other thing I think is this is a window of time we're looking at, and right now Quest Two dominates in education. It's hard to beat, and I, if if there were another like the Pico Pico Two Pico Three, I'm excited about. Um, for education because it bypasses the Facebook um, logins and all of that. But it really is a window of time because we everyone's waiting for, for Apple to come out with their smart classes. And I think when that lands, knowing Apple, that will change the game again, right? So this time next year, we'll be having a different conversation. There's an interesting headset coming out of, uh, I think, Taiwan or, or somewhere, the DECA gear. I've I've put down a deposit for that. Uh, really exciting. HTC is I think two weeks or a month away from announcing their next probably business um, or enterprise headset, but they're not out of the game yet. So it's really a window of time. We're looking at the Quest Two. Everybody is, but other companies are moving and shaking. And there's 2021 is going to be hot. I think for new for new headsets and technology, 2022. Yeah, give it a year or two and we'll be having a different conversation. And for that matter, again, I, I, I fight Facebook's corner. You know, why should they slow down? If the consumer decides to not go with it, fair enough. But they've got a compelling, compelling thing right now. And, and the last thing I'll say is also they're unapologetic about what they're doing <laughs> and also about the fact that they're really an enterprise, uh, sorry, a, a consumer, um, entertainment and gaming device it's 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 sold as a gaming console the market is wide open for somebody to come along and develop a uh, a different focus um like a really compelling education enterprise solution mm -hmm. right so the market is wide open they, they're they're doing one thing well and you know hats off to them i have an issue with the, the, the business model and everything, but that even more, I mean, they have chosen their business model. Other companies therefore are almost invited to fill the gap. You know, they're doing one thing. Well, go for it. The, the industry is, is rife for other um, solutions and approaches, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spoken to uh, developers, content creators in the past, a few of my friends are developers and um, they've, they've spoken about the fact that they avoid developing content specifically for Oculus. They, they'll release it on steam and then it's up to the consumer, what headset they use to actually access that content or they'll develop it and release it on side quest and then it's kind of, it's not necessarily you have to use a quest to use that. Um, but of course, 
like we're raising a point about um, kind of the, it's down to the consumer. It's down to the consumer at the end of the day to make the decision on what device they access that with. And I am hoping that other other companies um, will come out with new and unique headsets, HMDs or AR glasses or similar mixed reality devices that might um, fill the gap that Oculus is creating. Yeah. So um, they can have their market, they can have their target, um, okay. but then we need people to come in and fill that. Now, HTC, um, they they seem to be very focused on enterprise at the moment, which is a bit of a concern because they were the other big player in the market yeah. when this all yeah. started. Can I just say about consumers, so especially for new consumers, if you're a new consumer in the space, um, choosing anything other than Quest 2, I think, is, is, is you don't even know what you don't know. And here's a device that's good price point. Everybody else has got. It's like the, it's like the iPhone, right? There might have been other smartphones available at the time, but you didn't know for a mass, for, for the people who aren't already in this space, who are not aware of what else, it's pretty much only the Quest 2 that you, you're coming across nowadays. Um, so people who, consumers, I, I think it's going to be Quest 2 for a while, for a while, until another consumer-facing, compelling product that has the content that other friends have. So we've got iPhones and Android phones, right? Those are the two big platforms or hardware we've got. We need to. We need. We need an Android version. And ideally, what I would really love is for some people to come together and build an open source uh, headset. And there was a project that I followed, but they shut down. I think they got hoovered up by some big company and then shut down. Um, but we we don't really have an open source mobile phone. So I'm not too. I'm not holding my breath for an open source XR headset that would really make waves. But it would be cool. It would be really cool. True. I mean, it's also, I mean, when you're, when I, an open source, I always find is one of those slightly uh, um, tricky concepts in the sense that, you know, in, in principle, I absolutely, <coughs> absolutely approve of it. Um, uh, and there was, I mean, there's a, an R&D project we've been doing for a while with the Office of Public Works, um, where from one of the, the early briefing um, packs, it basically said, oh, we want you to develop this kind of, uh, basically what we're creating is like an AR storytelling platform so you can build your own AR trails like without any kind of technical know-how. Because um, uh, heritage organizations don't know how to use technology in that way, so making it step by step. Um, and one of the, the things that they, they spoke about earlier was, you know, we want this to be open source, we want it to be like, there and accessible and using as much open source stuff as possible. Um, and I mean, we asked them what what they meant by you want this to be open source. Yeah. Um, and they came back with, you know, like, as long as you can access the data, that's open source. We were just like, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but yeah. okay, that's, that's what you mean by Fair it. Um, but also then the sense that like, because you make something open source doesn't necessarily make it any more usable for anyone who isn't technically proficient enough to understand what you've done. Um, yeah, sure. And so it's, it's just one of those, it's, it's just one of the, I absolutely, I, I think a, I mean, a, a I collaborative. I mean, open source, like a collaboration. You can hack it, you can do stuff, you can, yeah. But that can it. be, that can, that can, the outcome is a, a, a purchasable product that you can choose to like dig into or not, but the, for the project 
to work together with a business model to, to build a headset that is viable uh, mm. competition. Um, that's kind of, I suppose, what I mean. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, and, and conceptually, I think like that, the, that differentiation between like the Android and the iPhone version of yeah. this, this approach um, is almost like the Wozniak jobs divide, isn't it? Really? Yeah. The, um, yeah. let's, let's make this something people can, can play with themselves, right. I think. Um, well, there is also the OpenXR um, standards, the movement, which is encouraging, where at least the devices uh, and, the, and, the, and the languages are starting to be um, able to communicate with each other and, and, and not be like siloed into different mm. technologies or, or languages. That's, that's encouraging to start. I think that's that's an interesting shift as as well because you know like in the background a lot of your apps already talk to each other and share data yeah. and create this kind of more holistic kind of experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thinking kind of in the future, this ability to to remove the walls between devices and products and experiences, and yeah. so you can you can leap from one something that one person's created and something someone else has created right. seamlessly and having those things speak to each other. Um, yeah. I think that would be a really interesting shift to, to see those kind of barriers come down. I want to pick up on that point a little bit, actually, about sharing data between experiences, between technologies, because, Rob, you've been doing some work around eye tracking and looking at the data collection of eye tracking within devices. And, I mean, I have some concerns over what that might mean in the future, if that data can be easily sold or shared between companies, what that might mean for society as a whole um, if if more of our biometric, I mean, Peter, you you touched on this biometric data being shared, but eye tracking is new. It's it's it is something that's been there in the background for a while, but now it's becoming more um, at the, like kind of in the next couple of years, it's going to be integrated into these technologies more and more. Mm. Uh, I mean, Rob, you have probably got a lot more to say about that than um, than I do, but I mean, it'd be good to get your perspective on what that might look like. Well, I, I would say that eye tracking has been one of the goals of uh, of these headsets since the very beginning. If you look at Ivan Sutherland's paper from 1965, his sort of white paper laying out this vision for what he called the ultimate display, he envisioned that uh, that through eye tracking that you could that could then result in a command. So the idea that that the, the the person in the headset looks this way, looks that way, and then the um, you know the the that world responds accordingly. Um, so that that's sort of always been in the background as as a goal, and we're now seeing that you know there's a lot of that um, whether it's in Quest or whether it's in in the Microsoft Hololens, um, particularly in two. Um, but I think we're also now seeing that relationship shift that um, where you look. This is, you know, with the convergence of a lot of these technologies, that it's that the headset itself is building up an understanding of your behaviors, of your interests, and uh, some of the studies that I'm seeing that are that are coming out are actually you know, they can go down to the point to the granularity of what sort of food do, would you prefer, what sort of color do you like, uh, you know, sexual orientation, all sorts of things that you can gather from this eye tracking data, and then 
influence your behaviors in that way. We, I mean, all of these, um, you know, social media, whatnot, th these are already shaping our behaviors, um, whether we realize it or not through all this data harvesting and then through the way that it can anticipate your, your kind of future actions. Um, I think that is a very real possibility um, with AR glasses and particularly if there's going to be any sort of advertising or anything like that, that as you're moving through the world, as you're walking down the street, um, that it will be able to anticipate what you're going to be looking at and kind of flagging that up, whatever kind of um, way that they decide to layer the world with information, um, because they, they do need to filter out. They're not going to give you this 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 huge barrage of, of information about everything in the world. It's going to filter and it's going to um, kind of understand what your interests, what your choices and that thing. Yeah. So, Right? Yes, exactly. So we're we're feeding them um, at the more that we look inside these devices, and that's that's part of uh, part of the their their design is to pick up mm -hmm. on on that data, but then to anticipate our interests and our behaviors sometimes by shepherding us maybe this way that, uh, rather than that way we can go left rather than than right now you you know in in the world without the glasses we might come to that fork in the road and just be like well which way do i go but with these glasses they might be able to to anticipate well actually you should probably go left because down this way there are more of of the types of shops or the more of the types of restaurants that you would are you going to meet the love of your life down that way <laughs> yeah that, and that's and that's where we can talk about that that sharing of info across those apps and this is you know this is part of the dream that they might that might be sold to us is that in AR that all of the all of our apps can come together because normally what we would do is we would pull out our phone and we have everything yeah. on our little interface in our palm but if we can have it all in our glasses these these apps can possibly talk to each other within within this world mm -hmm. within our vision so we no longer have to even pull out a phone it's all within within our our yeah. frame of vision and that's that's exciting, I think, for a lot of people to be able to say, well, great, I no longer really need a phone to, to uh, th that I need to kind of refer to all the time. I can just look around. It's um, I'm free. And I think there's this idea of of this freedom. That's that's what I've been using in, in some of my projects, this this idea that you're now hands free, just using the HoloLens one so that you can use your hands for other thing. And so other things. So I'm, I'm kind of using objects in, in this sort of storytelling um, so that people can have this kind of augmented you know view view of the world whilst their hands are free. So how will these tech companies use that sort of promise of of hands free? Um, you know, and, and how that potentially that dangerous as we're driving or, you know, walking anywhere else that we're being distracted by all of this, this information coming in through the, through the glasses. And this isn't just some sort of dystopian nightmare in the future. It's here right now. I mean, yeah, yeah. AR has crept into our lives, whether we realize it mm -hmm. or not, you know, sure. there's what 600 million AR, you know, devices in the world, mobiles, ta tablets, that, that sort of thing. Um, and through every face filter that you use um, through every time that you know you maybe scan your room ikea for example was, was one of the first big kind of marketing uh, ar apps um, you know or you know games of course like niantix games pokemon go that sort of thing so ar has really crept into our lives without us realizing it over mm -hmm. the you know since 2007 really and so it's already here it's ubiquitous whether we like it or not so yeah. it's kind of now now how do we engage with that and how is this going to, to shape the future of, of, of these glasses. AI. 
Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's only, you only call it AI, like, until you're familiar with it, and then it just becomes, you know, that's your notifications, that's your, like, suggested words at the yeah. end of your text. It's like, that's all AI, it's just, you know, mm. like, narrow applications of algorithms to, right. to enhance your experience. Um, yeah, I mean, when you look at it in relation to immersive technologies as well, you've got augmented intelligence, where you're bringing AI into the devices, into the experiences, and then it uses that data then to yeah. hopefully improve the experience. But you can't necessarily tell. And this is this is a big thing around, and this is what kind of why I wanted to pick up on a little bit is what do you think is the responsibility of like a the tech tech companies. What do you think is the responsibility of the designers, the developers? Are they actually using ethical design principles in the content they're creating? Or and what is the what what point do we say? Well, actually, we just need to educate people better. Well, if if I can just kind of jump in on that one, so there's like I think like a, a, a interesting example has been like the Tamworth project uh, that I'm working on at the moment. Um, so the development company, uh, the development partners that we're working with, they're called Discover Studios. Um, and they're very used to doing, uh, I suppose, work with, you know, like Google, Facebook, others, but they've brought out a new piece of tech, there's a new device or something. So they're used to building something for this brand new cutting edge piece of kit that very few people have, but it showcases the, the capabilities of that, that thing. Um, and they're kind of moving over into into heritage and cultural storytelling and those kind of experiences. And that's come up with some some really interesting challenges. I think one of them, like one of them has been, for example, the need to deliver augmented reality experiences on older and lower range devices, because that's what a lot of people who go to castles and heritage sites have. They don't have the latest. If everyone had an iPhone 12, that would be amazing. And yeah. Five years down the line, when every phone has LiDAR built into it as standard and blah, 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 who knows? Um, but for now, you know, I, even in five years' time, you'll still have people with a, an iPhone 7 going, why don't you work? Um, but uh, <laughs> so, so one of the things has been with that, I mean, thinking of the data kind of side of things, one of the things we made a point of very early on is to say that we don't want any data from our users if we want this to generate revenue in and of itself, then we'll put a, a payment on it. And so people know that they're not, their data isn't being farmed and used for other stuff. Transparency. And that's it. Um, and I mean, the, you know, like Tamworth Borough Council probably wouldn't know what to do with the data if they were gathering it. So there's no point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing that kind of came out of that was that some of the experiences, obviously older devices don't have the AR core and like the correct kind of stuff in built. So there's, there's been, there's had to be a whole lot of using uh, machine learning, for example, to make those filters. And like part of it is selfie filters um, that are kind of themed to the stories of the castles, but to get them a phone that doesn't, isn't designed to recognize faces, to learn what it's seeing and then place the filter in the right place has been a really interesting process. So it's been, in some ways, it's had this kind of iceberg approach of like a huge amount of work's gone on below the waterline. And what people actually see is the, the bit that sticks up above. Um, 
And then kind of just on the other, kind of the flip side of that is that working with cultural heritage clients, you know, this is a sector that's entirely, not entirely, but hugely reliant on uh, goodwill, interest groups, volunteer communities, you know, not technically advanced groups, but people who are passionate and are the, the life and soul of a lot of these places. Mm. Um, and so one of the approaches we took was, okay, so we're going to use a whole bunch of really advanced technologies, but we want these people to be involved. So one of the things, I mean, one of the things we're using is uh, volumetric film. Um, to, uh, so what we did was knowing we had these kind of, these people who could, who enjoyed dressing up, who enjoyed acting out these character roles, who did all this stuff. We went, right, okay, so what's a storytelling technique that would best use these people's kind of skills and passion, but that you can capture in this kind of using this advanced technology and then make that accessible in, in the location. Um, and so one of the things that happened there was really kind of going backwards in time in terms of storytelling technique to using a kind of almost a silent movie style approach. So there's old kind of black and whites where you have like the, the info card and then the action happens. You have like a score over the top and maybe you've recorded some sound. You need to see some of your stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it goes live in a, in a couple of weeks. So uh, cool. it will be ready for, ready for sharing. Um, cool. uh, and yeah, and so what you end up with is these kind of a really familiar experience with being delivered through technology that is is you know way further kind of ahead really than most exciting. people just conceive of. Yeah. Um, that's really exciting. I wanted to um, pick up on the question of whether companies are responsible, and I think emphatically yes. But there's a big problem with that. Um, on the one hand, companies are built and run by people, but legally, a company a company is an independent. Um, body and that's been this with the whole the whole idea of a limited company limited means limited liability and um you you know ethically all the designers all the people who run these companies as human beings as parents of children um should all have a vested interest in making this uh fair and um and open and transparent and, and positive. The problem you've got is a limited company and even more a public, uh, publicly traded company exists to generate profits for the shareholders. And therefore, people's decisions get overridden by that imperative. Mm. And that's fundamentally a problem, I think, with these things. For a technology to be successful, to get funded, um, it needs to generate profits. Therefore, it needs to make decisions that humans might not make. Mm. Yeah, there's that a... That underlies, that drives a lot of the problem that we have here. Yeah, that kind um, of surrounding... And still that. I mean, it's, it's independent of technology. Sorry um, to cut you off there. It's independent of technology. You have that problem um, with uh, oil companies, tobacco, uh, alcohol sales, uh, mm. arms sales. You have that problem with... Um, the Sony Walkman right up to the HoloLens 2 and the Art Project Ari. Fundamentally, it's not, a, it's not a technology problem. It's accentuated by technology, as Rob was saying, because you've got these devices reading every little flick of your eye muscles pointing, oh, there's the woman in the red dress from the Matrix, right? <laughs> it's reading all of this stuff. 
and the 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 ability of technology to capture and process data is vastly vastly amplified by this technology yeah. but it's not fundamentally a technological problem i don't think yeah i think yeah yeah no i i would absolutely agree and just kind of you know like that surrounding incentives and reward structure which is you know a byproduct of or you know pretty fundamental to the the way that we've uh, uh, developed our current yeah. economic yeah. and social kind of interactions is yeah is a significant challenge i think with the um as you say with the uh uh, uh <laughs> the the data being gathered and and you know the, the woman in the red dress i think there's a, a really interesting challenge there around um like firstly your your rights to to not have your world mediated by someone else um and then secondly i think with the um uh, forgotten what the point was going to be oh no that was it so the, the idea that yeah you've got the, all this data being generated and algorithms being used to you know to personalize that for you in a range of ways i think the whole language around the algorithm or algorithmic kind of uh, uh application um is very much this idea of you know it's an algorithm it's not biased it's you know we put the data in and it comes out and it's a beautiful and clean system and you know like the i think there's a there's a new netflix thing called coded bias but increasingly people are getting the sense that you know like algorithms are encoded bias of the person who created that algorithm like that's yeah. and, and humans are human like when you put something especially with ai like when you put something into a black box yeah, the, system and the you interesting can't, thing happens when you develop algorithms that are capable of developing algorithms. Yeah. I think I remember reading about that. Then when when machine learning learns about how to develop better algorithms independently, we're, you know, we're down the looking hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I can I can definitely uh recommend coded bias. Um I think it's um yeah, Joy Bottlebuini and um the algorithmic justice justice league um mm. that really came out of this this um concern that um a lot of these algorithms have been essentially fed um have been trained on uh, essentially white men and yeah. um you know where that how that leaves people especially in terms of surveillance the way that it, it often uh we we see in Britain in particular the way that um that these technologies that have been uh that don't really understand um you know people of color and end up really um falsely identifying people the way that that police uh, organizations already using this. We saw this in Stratford, um, in East London and, and police forces are already using these. Um, a number of, of, um, industries are already using, um, these, this software for hiring. You know, we saw it with Amazon, for example, you know, one of the, a really kind of yeah. <laughs> horrible example where it was just basically identifying certain types of men for, for roles. No women were being hired mm -hmm. because the algorithms had, had identified men as, as more desirable to get to interview. So we, we are are already seeing these these types of, of of biases in the algorithms that are being used um, at, at the moment. But I, I also do wonder how much, even when we um, even when people learn about them, how much will people um, care? 
to be perfectly honest, because we we have I mean, how much do we know that 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 Facebook, what Facebook is doing with their data? And yet we still engage with Facebook's platforms. We're still using exactly. WhatsApp. We're still using Instagram. It's not exactly. just about Facebook itself. Um, and so even when, when people understand to a certain extent what's being done with their data, they still don't necessarily care enough exactly. in order to take uh, action against it. Or you just sort of say it's it's a bit like the, the well, I haven't done anything wrong. So, you know, why would this affect me? So I I, I, I also don't believe necessarily that that more education is is necessarily the answer to to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, yeah I would that say leaves me, yeah, that leaves me kind of with two things. One, a little bit fatalistic because it's not a new issue um, and we haven't solved it and it's screaming us in the face. And we had the, the documentary, the social dilemma and all of that. Mm. It's screaming us in the face and consumers are still not, we can't leave it up to consumers. So partly I'm not one for regulation. I'm not big on regulation. So, you know, partly fatalistic, but on the other hand, I, you were talking about the algorithmic justice league. I want to see that's a superhero movie for me. I want to see a movie based on that, but, um, I really, those people are heroes for me doing the work. I I'm not that kind of person. I don't have that kind of expertise, but we do need those people who stand up for all of our rights. And then I think we need some kind of regulation or taxation taxes where you get people, right. But, um, Google pays no tax in Europe. Uh, uh, Facebook, I think, pays no tax in Europe, yeah. and that can't be. You know, if 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 their whole business model is on data, they should be taxed on data. You were saying it before, uh, I think, before we started recording, a, a data tax, something along those lines. Um, There's yeah. something. I mean, there there is uh, there is something interesting there because you know, like uh, recently, uh, WhatsApp, obviously, like Facebook, WhatsApp. Like they sent out that notification that they were changing their data policy. They were going to share your data much more fluidly between. <laughs> there was a massive reaction to that, a huge exodus from WhatsApp. Obviously, there's a lot of people still use WhatsApp. Um, yeah. But there was there was the biggest movement away from a communication device or tool mm -hmm. because simply because people associate Facebook with bad data practices. They associated yeah. WhatsApp with good data practices and privacy. Yeah. And as soon as they said, oh, no, we're opening that gate, people went, yeah, I don't want that. I don't yeah. want you to do that. Um, so I think there, there is. I think there's also, you know, that it's, it's, it feels like it's, because, uh, uh, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, like one of the things, like I, I have all sorts of, of issues with, capitalism and, and, and an economic kind of perspective of the world is as, as long as you're kind of going like the only thing that matters is economics and people's activity and the money they generate, then I, you know, I think that's, that's the wrong value proposition for me personally. Like I understand why people do it. It's a common language that can be applied everywhere. But at the same time, there's, I think that, that capitalism also has this kind of habit of eating its own babies, you know? Um, and so there's absolutely a market for um, people saying, I'm producing something that doesn't farm your data, you know? You, and, and as the literacy progresses around these things, I think people are becoming aware of the fact that, you know, if I want my privacy, I'm gonna to have to pay five pounds a year to this thing. That's interesting. And then I know that, you know, like there isn't a free lunch. I get that now. 
okay, my bad, I was doing that for a while, but I don't want to. And so marketing your... Fair trade market, like the fair trade coffee, fair trade chocolate, if you want to feel you know, safe in the knowledge that you're not being exploited, you pay the premium for the, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, there will be people for whom those free services are the only ones they can access, but then finding, finding ways like, you know, I think more ethical trading models like the, the thing like, yeah, okay. Like I've paid to download this thing. I can afford to do that. If you can afford to do that, maybe you can afford to sponsor someone who can't afford to do that. Yeah. And we're looking at this with like the the digital education at Tamworth Castle at the moment. So it's if you your school can afford to sponsor another school that can't afford it, then you can do that, and someone else gets to to have that experience too. Here's a thought. You know how in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, tobacco there wasn't an issue, right? People smoked, and tobacco companies made profit. I wonder. If in 10, 20 years, there's going to be massive lawsuits yeah. against yeah. the practices happening now. Massive lawsuits. I think that will be, for sure. Shutting down industries and practices and, and all that. That would be very interesting like, yeah. on the basis of like when it becomes apparent, like you can't avoid the fact that your practices are bad. And I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but there were studies came out, retrospective studies about um, – Child mental health in the UK and when the iPhone, the smartphones yeah. hit the market. Ubiquitous internet and social media in kids' pockets, suicide, self-harm, mental health issues. Oh, the graphs coincided. Boom. Whether that's going to be a massive lawsuit coming back. Yeah. I really yeah. <laughs> so um, I mean, coming off of that point, um, kind of from your own perspective. Um, how might the current or next generation of practitioners, researchers, and educators help steer the immersive sector, both technology and experience-wise, in the right direction, do you feel? Go on, Daniel. Um, yeah, just a little plug for educators in VR. So we started out um, just wanting to gather educators, uh, teachers, trainers into a conversation uh, to meet, share, and collaborate in and with VR. So this distinction between in and with VR is quite interesting because we actually meet in VR, but then mm. we talk about how to use it in classrooms where we talk about with VR. Uh, and um, and then it became apparent people were approaching us to not only educate with and in VR, but about VR. So the whole conversation about what is VR, how do we use it, and how do we do this responsibly um, became a thing. And so the the community we have gathered is is attracting a lot of members every month and to the point where we're in throughout may we're running a conference a free conference uh 30 days three events a day with panels and conversations and workshops with pioneers and leaders in the field um and that's part of what we're trying to do um part of what we're trying to do is have a conversation about what is it? This is cool. What are you doing? Show us, you know, showcase and everything. But also critical conversations about um, design choices, user interface design choices, data, privacy, exactly the conversation we've had here, but on a much broader scale. So please, everybody's invited. It's a free mm-hmm. conference. Go to educatorsandvr.com. Um, the program will be released shortly, but that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, bring together a community of all voices from grassroots, including industry partners, 
to have this conversation to figure it out together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too important to leave to the to the, the the big five, you know. And we need to be we need to be uh, a thorn in their side uh, until until we we have a system that is responsible, transparent, and ethical. Yeah, I mean, uh, Peter, uh, Rob, do you have anything then you think might kind of what we need to consider for the next generation of practitioners and and uh, um, and kind of how might better steer the the sector? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, Rob, I I, I think because we we from the kind of the industry side, and we do we do a lot of work with. Uh, universities, for example, around kind of this, this kind of industry academic, uh, collaboration and, and applying the theory to, to real world problems. Um, so I've, all, I've always found that to be a, a rewarding and insightful and effective way of, you know, bringing up real challenges for people, um, and seeing how the next generation of, of graduates are going to start you know, responding to or attacking those particular problems. Um, I think we've touched on a few of the points already. I think there's something, and I personally, it's 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 not the only way I work, but it's the way I very much prefer to work. Is this this collaborative, um, collaborative creative development? Um, so you're working with audiences as well as different clients and stakeholder kind of. Uh, different different arrangements of client and stakeholder and participant, um, and that you know, like as this was at a conference a while back, and and we were talking about co-creation and, and collaboration, and some someone in the audience kind of raised their hand and was like, "But doesn't that just lead to design by committee?" And you just go, "Well, I mean, yes." But, you know, that's not a bad thing, actually, you know, multiple perspectives and being able to bring people along on that journey, I think, is absolutely essential. Um, and it's, it's like one of the, the core bits of, of the work that we do with this kind of this, this master planning and creative development is it's not just going kind of so there was, was a really interesting kind of uh, uh, thing I heard a while back, which is like kind of different models of consultancy. It was actually Atul Gawande in Being Mortal. So he's, he wrote a book about when his father died and this was like, he's a doctor and it's the different types of conversations he needed to have with his dad about an aging, like about getting old and dying. Um, and he was just like, yeah, there's kind of three different approaches you can take to consulting. One of which is like the expert where you go, here are the options. I'm going to tell you like all of the different options and everything about them. And then you pick, right. And then you've got the technician who's kind of, I'm not going to tell you about all the options. I'm going to tell you about the ones that are best for you. And then, you know, like I'll, I'll go away and do it for you because you picked the ones that I pretty much told you to pick. Um, and then you have the, the, the collaborative or, or the, the, the partnership approach, which is, it's a mixture of those things. So it's a mixture of here are the different options. And then it's a mix and then it's the like, okay, how do we implement those things? But the real key is as you're going through that process, discussing and thinking about the consequences of the decisions that you make. So at any point during a project, you know, I, I was using the example of um, 
I mean, if you picked any museum, but we, we go back to the Natural History Museum for a moment. You know, if their thing is, you know, if we teach uh, our audiences come here to learn about nature and the natural world and, and the environment and those kind of things, you go, okay, fine. So that's what you do. But what if, you know, you wanted to become the museum where everything is accessible to people regardless of age or ability? That will change fundamentally the way that that museum thinks about, talks about itself, acts in the world, and how it interacts with its visitors. Just from having a, a, a narrative shift about how they think about themselves and then acting that out, understanding the consequences of that decision, and then genuinely acting that out in the world. Um, so I think it's, yeah, there's a long way of saying, I think that the partnership um, side of things and i think it's like i think it's an empathy thing really you know and it's not kind of i'm not trying to walk in your shoes but i'm trying to walk by your side for a bit to understand what it is you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it and then coming up with a way that will help get you to that destination that you, that you see I, th I think what I certainly what I want to see from this this generation of makers is absolutely that that idea of co-creation in the sense that um the more that I work with um, various communities, the more that I'm, I'm seeing this philosophy of nothing about us without us, that they need to be a part of the storytelling process. Um, I think that was that was a term that came from um, sex workers, um, from sex workers union. This idea that the way that that sex workers have been portrayed in the media, especially in documentaries and all of that, that they now want to uh, be a part of that production process in order to be um, portrayed responsibly. I think we need to think about, about this about any community, particularly with um, with marginalized communities or um, you know places that we are not from. Um, if we ourselves are part of of essentially the, um, the the dominant group of society, that that's a time when we need to know how to listen and how to bring those voices into the production process and into distribution. Um, so yeah, I, I think what I want to see is, is if certainly from from this generation of, of makers is. I think learn from the mistakes of everything being really led by straight white men, shall we say, um, and really, you know, mess things up. Um, you know, make make weird stuff. I think is is something that I want. you know I want to see more more weirdness, more queerness, more um, things that make us evaluate our world in so many different different ways. Because I think that's that's the value of art. So I think bringing a lot of those art practices into um, into these things and, and and you know games are an art form absolutely. And I think this is certainly a world where you can build something that makes us all evaluate. Uh, reevaluate ourselves and reevaluate our environment in positive ways, not mm -hmm. just what can we be sold. So I, I think there's so much potential. There, you know, the, the 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 book hasn't been written yet about how to use these technologies, and I think this generation can really start to to write those. Uh, you know, it's it's like riding a bike, putting putting a bike together as you're riding it. It's is that sort of feeling right now with the industry um, that we can we can invent these rules. And we don't necessarily have to follow with, you know, real world realism. And that's a big problem I'm seeing a lot with AR is, is that we're, we're spending so much time going for hyper realism, uh, you know, all this 3D scanning and all of that. Why not make a new world? Why, you know, why do we have to follow the rules of, of physics and, and why do we have to follow the biases? Why do we have to follow?
follow even what our own bodies look like and what they feel like. We can use these technologies for so many other ways of expanding our horizons and, and our knowledge of, of our bodies, of the world. So I, you know, that's, that's more what I, what I want to see is, is how, how can we expand, not just how can we become more insular? Interesting. Yeah. And those, it made me think of, of uh, kind of two examples there that one was so we worked with um uh students at central st martin's um on the narrative environments course there and one of the things so they, there's a range of different uh usually cultural organizations but or cultural or community organizations you kind of set a brief um and then we work with the student groups to kind of respond to that um and one of them was a a local cultural organization shall we say in near king's cross um and the brief was, you know, to to engage people in the local area with the collections and the stories, because people in the local area didn't really visit the place. They didn't really engage with the stuff. Um, and so, you know, students kind of came up with a bit of an idea. The key to it was, you know, taking some of those objects from the collections into those communities and seeing how the people responded to them, what those objects meant to them, how that changed when they learned about them, and then sharing that story as an exhibition. That cultural organization basically flat out refused and said, you can't take these objects to those people. We don't, we don't really want you to do it. So it was, it was, it was, and the National Trust is another perfect example, right? Like that's a, a, a heritage organization that 90% of their properties or something, I, I don't know about that particularly, but like a huge number of their properties are built off the back of the slave trade, of the sugar trade. And it's, it's an essential part of that story, you know. Um, and they've, they've tried to engage with that story. They've done some research around it, this whole kind of decolonialization move. Um, and, you know, on, it doesn't come out particularly well in the public kind of uh, expression of that work. Um, but even the, the small amounts that they have done to try and, to try and engage with, you know, with gay culture, with slavery, with colonialism, um, the audiences to the National, that was the thing that like, I found really surprising, was that visitors to National Trust properties kind of went, don't tell us these things. We don't come here to be told things. We come here to look at pretty places. I don't want to know about like the dark history of why that stand has a black slave with a gold collar holding up the, the top of it, you know? But like that's the, this is the interesting kind of, I think, mix, especially when we're, we're talking about like who gets control of that story. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is you do have these big organizations that have a vested interest in like they, they tell a story in a particular way or they have a particular perspective on you know, huge swathes of history. But the, the thing with digital is you don't need to be that organization to create a digital experience that people can have in that place. You know, any, any organization can start playing with that storytelling approach, start playing with those technologies and create something that people who go to those places can experience in that location that changes the story that's being told. Um, and I think this, that's one of kind of following on a bit from what you were saying, Rob, I think there's something really interesting about this kind of guerrilla 
storytelling and engagement that can really start to, to flip the, I suppose, flip the balance of, of who gets to produce these stories and how those stories can, can start interacting with each other and, and what it means for me to hear your perspective on what this thing means to you. Because I don't have to agree with it. I don't, I, you know, you might say something horrible about it and I go, oh no, what a, what a nasty guy. Um, but at the same time, like when I heard you speak, then I'm more likely to listen to you if we meet, you know, to give you that space, even if I know I don't agree or I think I don't agree. It's that process of going like, cool, I've, I've heard, I've heard the, the story of your community. I've heard your family's kind of, you know, talking about how you do dinner. And now I know more about you as a human. You've become humanized to beyond a kind of a demographic or a number or a skin color or anything like that. I think that's one of the, the really important things. And, and, and I suppose taking that slightly further is kind of saying, like, yeah, there is a dominant ideology and a cultural kind of, of narrative. Um, and there's some really interesting new voices and perspectives kind of emerging in that space. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, though, I think it's important for people to share what they think about things that aren't themselves um and it's it's only through that process through that dialogue and that that conversation and having it increasingly conversational i think um and discursive um and that's where i think just thinking sorry, on the on the flip side of that in terms of kind of uh cultural organizations and businesses this idea of commissioning um commissioning work and I think you, you put it really nicely like you don't have to be bounded by reality you know or or realism maybe um and the idea that that I, I, yeah the idea that you you create a brief that is aspirational I think that's something we've lost a lot recently is is kind of the real the human aspiration as opposed to a technological advancement um, because there's, there's many ways, there's infinite ways to skin a cat, but you want to make sure it's the right cat you're trying to skin. And that's probably not a technical one. It's a, it's an emotional creature, um, that's going to change and adapt over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you both raised some really good points. I'd just like to point out no cats were harmed in the recording of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a tortured I, metaphor, that one. But, uh. <laughs> um, like, as much as I think we could talk about this all afternoon, um, I think we can leave it there both. Um, so I'd just like to thank uh, each of you for joining me today and for taking the time to speak about this topic. Um, I think your insight's been really, really informative and it's been lovely speaking to you and um, until next time. Yeah, thanks so much for having us and great to meet you, Rob, and, uh, and speak soon. Yeah, thanks for having us back. Cheers.